Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is why attempting to regulate speech on social media platforms is a bad idea. We're coming to you again today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm going to talk through all of the major arguments about why we at the Institute for Policy Innovation believe that attempting to regulate speech on social media platforms is a bad idea. And I'm joined today in the studio by Addie Crimmins, our Director of Development and Events at IPI. And I'm sure Addie will chime in with some of her thoughts and questions as well. So we're recording this Policy Basics podcast on May 6th, 2021. And the only reason that that matters is that yesterday, May 5th, 2021, was when the Facebook Oversight Board released its decision about whether or not Facebook made the right decision by suspending President Donald Trump's Facebook account. Now, all of the news stories since then have been all about how the Facebook Oversight Board said Facebook did the right thing. But interestingly enough, if you actually read what the Facebook Oversight Board did, they were the board was highly critical of Facebook. They said that Facebook applied a rule that did not exist when they suspended President Trump's account. They said that the rule had been applied arbitrarily. And so what the Facebook Oversight Board decided was that the ban could stay in place for six months, but it had to be reviewed again in six months. And in the meantime, Facebook was required to come up with an enforceable rule that could be consistently applied to everyone, not just to Donald Trump. So it was actually kind of interesting what the Facebook Oversight Board actually did was demonstrate quite a bit of independence. For, so for those who are criticizing the board as somehow just being a shill for the company, uh, that's actually not what happened. And in fact, uh, the Cato Institute recorded a podcast in, uh, episode yesterday, May 5th, 2021, with a member of the Facebook Oversight Board who also happens to be a scholar at Cato. So if you really want to listen to an interesting 20-minute discussion about how the Oversight Board works, what it decided to do, et cetera, et cetera, uh, go check out that podcast because that's that's really, really interesting. So we're going to talk about the idea of social media speech regulation, but we're not going to do a deep dive on Section 230, what the law means, what it doesn't mean, et cetera, et cetera. We should probably do that another time. But in the meantime, last year on August 18th of 2020, we did a Zoom briefing on exactly that topic, on Section 230. And we did it with a lawyer named Jeff Kossoff, who wrote a book called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And the title of that event was called Should We Change the 26 Words That Created the Internet? And so you can go back on IPI's website or IPI's YouTube channel, and you can check that out if you want to do a deep dive on Section 230. So, Tom, I wanted to kind of bounce an idea off of you based on some of the things that I've been reading and hearing about this Facebook decision. Um, there's been a lot of metaphors for this this board, this oversight committee with the Supreme Court. Yeah. And it kind of it kind of gives me quills. I'm going to yeah. be honest. Yeah. I, I, I don't like 
um, comparing this company and the oversight board to one of what I think is a, a very sacred institution. Mm-hmm. And so I, I understand that they want it to be, you know, separate and and not have any invested interest. But I think the fact that Facebook has acquired so much power and so much influence that they're they're comparing the two, our Supreme Court and yeah. their oversight committee. Yeah. Can you I mean, can you just agree with me that we're yeah, just no, that, we're, we're we're crossing a lot of lines here and it's, it's Well, I I I think that that's an interesting point and you know, I mentioned this Cato Institute podcast, mm-hmm. right? So on this podcast, here we are like giving props to like another podcast, right, instead of our sure, own. Sure. <laughs> but on that podcast, uh the Cato scholar who's on the oversight board he kept talking about Facebook's rules as if it was like a rule of law kind of issue. Like, you know, we're, we're going to view whatever your moderation rules are, we're going to view them as if they are laws for Facebook. And then we're going to say that if you're not consistent in applying those rules, and if you're not consistent in following your own rules, it's like you're breaking the rule of law. And that did creep me out a little bit. It's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to think about. And one of the one of the guys on the on the board is a constitutional law professor mm-hmm. at Stanford. And and the way the way he talks about it is is it gives both the both Donald Trump, the situation, Facebook, the platform, it gives everybody too much power. And I'm mm-hmm. sitting here, you know, I, I think as we'll get into this, the point is Facebook is a business. Yeah. And you get to make your own decisions, but but we've elevated it to such a point where we need to to agonize over what Donald Trump is saying, mm-hmm. over his influence, how many followers does he have, and and what does this say about our platform? And it the whole the whole power play thing to me just just is creepy, and I hate it. I, I don't. Facebook <laughs> doesn't have a Supreme Court. We, yeah. that's why it's the Supreme Court. It's ours. I think you make a really interesting point, and that is that. And, and I understand why they set up the Facebook Oversight Board. Sure. And I'm not prepared at this point sure. to say that that was a mistake. No, no. But, but it is interesting because there's a sense in which if you start acting like there's something special and critical about your particular company or your business, it's almost like you're inviting the government to get more involved. I remember how, you know, in the early days of broadband, uh, the broadband companies wanted everybody to buy broadband, right? They wanted consumers to buy it. And so one of their main messaging point was that broadband was critical infrastructure, right? And so, you know, Bartlett Clellan, you know, our research fellow in technology and innovation. And Bartlett and I both were very troubled by that. And we told him, the more you keep talking about your business as if it's critical infrastructure, the more you're inviting the government to get involved. Because if it really is critical, then the government must need to supervise it, right? Sure, sure. So, yeah, so there's definitely an angle where you want to be careful that you don't become so self-important in your business that you actually invite the government in to sort of say, we need to play a bigger role here. And now we know if you call it infrastructure, I mean, well, everything's a- any, infrastructure anything now, can right? be infrastructure. <laughs> this podcast is yeah, infrastructure. Child care is it's, infrastructure. It's That's the it's thing fine. we've recently learned, yes. huh? Okay, so let's talk about, oh, eight or nine different sort of what I think are major relevant policy points that help us think through this issue of should con- and and we're talking from a conservative free market standpoint. So and it's it's honestly it's conservatives who are out there arguing for regulation right now of social media, which is really sort of a weird turn. So what we want to do is we want to ask the question: Should conservatives be in favor of regulating using the power of government to regulate social media companies? 
and what might be the various problems with that. So let's talk about the first one, and that is that there's always going to be tension and ambiguity in any government system that elevates individual rights and liberty such as ours has. When, when individuals are, are free, when they have a great deal of, ec- of economic liberty, people and actors in the marketplace are not always going to behave the way you would prefer them to behave or the way you would expect them to behave. And you're not always going to get the result that you prefer from a given marketplace. You can influence a marketplace by choosing whether or not to participate in it, but you don't get to determine the outcome by yourself. You're one player, and when we're talking about social media, we're talking about a business with hundreds of millions, and in Facebook's case, even I think I think over a billion customers, and you're simply one of those. So you do get to play your role in the market, but you don't necessarily get to determine the favorite outcome that you want. And the other thing that we commonly run into in the policy world is this idea that every problem should have a solution. And our response to that is not everything that you think is a problem is actually a problem. It may just be that the marketplace is giving a different result than the one you would prefer, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem. And also that not every problem has an easy solution. Uh, It's not a failure of the market. It's not a problem. It's not something unjust that demands that the government get involved just because you don't like the result of a particular market. Now, the second point I think that's relevant here is that free markets are not perfect. They're just better than the alternative of government regulation and control. In fact, we've done a podcast episode specifically on that point, that for those of us who defend free markets, we're not arguing that they're perfect. They're not perfect at any given slot in time, and they're not perfect over the long run. They're just better than anything else that we have. And so when we're looking at a market and when we're asking whether government should step in and regulate or not, the question is not, is a perfect outcome possible? Because it's not. The question is whether a system with more government oversight and control would be better than what we're getting from the free market. And, you know, it definitely gives away our free market bias here to say that we think most of the time, if government is involved, you're actually going to get worse outcomes, not better outcomes than what the market is delivering for you right now. Now, another point is that we should focus on process, not outcomes. When we talk about things like we believe in the rule of law, what we're talking about is a process. We're not necessarily talking about the outcome. And if you look back at political history, it tends to be the political left that is always focusing on getting their preferred outcomes no matter what. Uh, The left has achieved its agenda over time largely by things like the court imposing policies on the country. They couldn't, get their, they couldn't get their policy through the legislature, so they had a court impose their preferred policy. Uh, they've tried to pack the Supreme Court. Back during FDR's day, FDR wanted to pack the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court was not giving him the result that he wanted. And now we hear calls for packing the Supreme Court now, again, because the left is afraid that they're not going to get the, the result that they want. They're talking about making D.C. a state. They talk about reinterpreting the Constitution and using international law instead of U.S. law. Uh, They talk about the Constitution being a living document, and they oppose a textual originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And the reason they do all of those things is that all those things are barriers to them getting what they want. So in general, it's the left that operates on the 
we want to get our way no matter what, and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. That's sort of a the ends justifies the means philosophy. That's sort of a by any means necessary kind of philosophy. And in general, what conservatives do is they don't focus on their preferred outcome. They focus on the process. It's generally the conservatives who say, let's follow the law. Let's follow the Constitution, and we'll let the chips fall where they may. And if we really do think that there's something in the Constitution that is an obstacle, then amend the Constitution. Don't just ignore it. Don't just decide you're going to ignore it or you're going to reinterpret it or something like that. If you want to change it, change the Constitution. So historically, one of the great faults of the progressive left is that they have focused on outcomes. And so when I see conservatives talking about regulating social media, I see them slipping into the same thing. We don't like the result this market is delivering, and so we want to try to get a preferred outcome. And if that requires us to violate our own principles, we're willing to do it. And I I just want to make a a quick comment. When you were going through the, the numerous ways that the left wants to gain progress, you mentioned FDR a number of times, and and that was sort of this mentality of we're we're in an unusual situation, so this is okay. So I can be elected to, you know, mm-hmm. nineteen terms. Yeah, I can pack the court. I can. I mean, we're we're in dire straits, and I think the fact that so many of those situations are resurfacing right now is really frightening because yeah. you, if you look back on FDR and just that whole time period. We were in dire straits, but it also is there was a lot of unconstitutional activity going on. And the fact that that we use that to justify it and that so many of those issues are resurfacing to me is kind of worrisome. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. I mean, until recently, like the peak of the progressive movement was FDR. Right. And so the idea was, look, we're in a depression and we're going to use that that we're going to use that as an excuse, basically, to push through a bunch of progressive era programs which basically just empowered the federal government, right? We're yes. going to tell farmers what crops they can grow, yes. what crops they can't grow. We're going to tell them how they have to plow. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And what happened is almost every time those programs were challenged at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court found against the Roosevelt administration. And so it was in that frustration that Roosevelt said, okay, fine, we'll just pack the court. You know, we're going to get our way no matter what, even if it requires just packing the court. Which is a total subversion of the idea of separate branches of government. I mean, yes. that, I mean, I know that's a very basic point, but if, if you think about packing the court, well, it's these, like these you are, don't get to These are called policy do... basics uh, sure, podcast, sure. <laughs> so basic is okay. No, no, you're exactly right. Um, but I really want to sort of emphasize this idea of focusing on outcomes rather than mm-hmm. process, right? Because when we talk about all of the legal structures that we have that have developed around the Bill of Rights and around our rights, like due process and stuff like that, right? It's the process that matters. And even if every once in a while the outcome is wrong, like in the justice system, let's say every once in a while a guilty person goes free, right? Well, we've made a decision as a society that as long as the process was followed properly, that's an okay outcome. You know, what really matters is, is the process followed properly? And as long as the process is followed properly, we think that more times than not, we're going to get a good result. We're going to get the the right result. There's no guarantees. When you start getting focused on it's the it's the result that matters, not the process, that just becomes a perversion of the rule of law and all of these institutions that have developed over time to guarantee our freedom and to guarantee our liberties. So I think one of the problems with conservatives wanting to regulate speech on social media platforms is that it is the same kind of frustration that, you know, that that progressive leftists have. And they said, you know what, we're just going to, we're going to get the outcome we want, regardless of whether we follow the right process or not. 
But I think conservatives should understand that they are adopting the means of the left when they do that. Now, there's another really important point, I think, that people either aren't familiar with or don't have a proper appreciation of, and that is that the Supreme Court has, by and large, taken a very broad, expansive view of individual rights. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So let's talk about, for instance, let's talk about the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. So you read the Second Amendment, and when you read the Second Amendment, you can see that it is logically possible to interpret that in a narrow way, right? That we, we allow people to have guns essentially for national defense, you know, the militia and all that sure, kind of thing. Sure. But the Supreme Court has purposely interpreted the Second Amendment in a much broader sense than just the way it's necessarily written. And the same thing is true of the First Amendment. The same thing is, is true of freedom of speech. The Supreme Court has taken a very broad view. When I, when I say the Supreme Court, I just don't I don't just mean the recent conservative Supreme Court. I mean conservative, liberal, moderate, whatever. The trend has been that the court has taken a very broad view of the First Amendment. We talk about corporations now being people and corporations being able to make political contributions based on the First Amendment, right? So that's a very broad interpretation of the First Amendment. And so the reason I bring this up is that almost every attempt to regulate speech on internet platforms is going to run afoul of the First Amendment. But it's going to run afoul of the First Amendment for a different reason than most people might think. Because most people, when they think about the First Amendment, they think of freedom of speech. So the government can't stop me from speaking on politics, right? And, and 99% of the time when people think about the First Amendment, they think about my freedom to say what I want to say. But there's another, there's a flip side to the First Amendment that is equally important and that comes into play here. And that is that while the government can't stop you from speaking, the government also cannot force you to speak. And this is called compelled speech. And it is just as much a violation of your First Amendment rights for the government to force you to say something than it is for the government to prevent you from saying something. And it's on this compelled speech angle that these attempts to regulate platforms run into a problem. Now, just as an example of compelled speech, there are countries that have laws that make voting a legal obligation. You're required to vote. If, if Congress passed a law requiring all Americans to vote, it's a slam dunk that the Supreme Court would toss it out. They would say, you can't do that because the government can't force you to engage in political speech and political activity. So when we talk about regulating social media platforms being a violation of the First Amendment, what we're focusing on is this issue of compelled speech, okay? And let's give a specific example. A lot of our listeners, especially the conservatives, are familiar with the situation of the Christian baker in Colorado named Jack Phillips. And Jack Phillips has a bakery called Masterpiece Cake Shop. And a same-sex married couple came in and wanted him to make a wedding cake for them, and he refused to do it. He said, that's a violation of my religious liberty because I don't believe in it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court turned it back. The Supreme Court said that we can tell from reading the regulations in Colorado, we can tell from the transcripts of the meetings in Colorado, that this regulation was put in place by Colorado with hostility toward religious belief. And you can't do that. You cannot enable a policy that is hostile to religious belief. But the Supreme Court didn't say Jack Phillips is off the hook. They said, you have to go back and reconsider this because 
you can't enact a regulation that is hostile to religion. So Jack Phillips is still in trouble. Okay. Now, almost everybody that thinks about the Jack Phillips case thinks that his strongest defense is religious liberty, but it's not. It's not. Because the Supreme Court has already found in past decisions that religious freedom is not enough to trump laws on equal access and public accommodation. So, for instance, Jack Phillips can't say to a same-sex married couple, you're not allowed to come into my bakery and you're not allowed to buy brownies. He's not allowed to do that. It doesn't matter what, what his religious beliefs are because people have a right to equal access and to public accommodation. So for people who think that somehow Jack Phillips is going to end up prevailing on religious liberty arguments, they're wrong. The argument where Jack Phillips is going to end up prevailing is on the compelled speech argument, and that is that the state of Colorado cannot compel Jack Phillips to engage in speech that he doesn't believe in. So the idea is that if a same-sex married couple comes in the bakery, wants to buy a cake or tray of brownies or whatever, they're perfectly free to do so. But no one can force Jack Phillips to decorate a cake. If somebody came in and said, uh, Jack, I want a wedding cake, and I want you to put on the top, Jesus loves gay people, okay? You can't compel Jack to do that. The state of Colorado or the federal government cannot compel him to do that. And the reason is what we're talking about is compelled speech. And so the way that Jack Phillips will probably end up prevailing in court, and I'm going to be very tedious about this because I want the parallel to be obvious, and that is because the cake is Jack Phillips's platform. And Jack Phillips cannot be required by the government to host whatever speech someone wants to put on his platform. So Jack Phillips is in an extremely similar position to social media platforms. And so when conservatives come along and when they say, we want a law that tells Facebook that they have, they have to host speech from conservatives, they're not allowed to block, they're not allowed to filter, they have to host speech by Donald Trump, they have to host speech no matter what it is. What they're do, they're putting themselves in the exact same position that the Colorado government puts itself in with regard to Jack Phillips. So if you're a conservative and you think Jack Phillips should not be required to decorate a cake for a same-sex marriage, you cannot think that Facebook has to be required to carry speech that they don't believe in. Legally speaking, from a compelled speech First Amendment standpoint, it is exactly the same situation. Now, the reason I spent so much time on this parallel is just to sort of help people understand how important this compelled speech point is, that your First Amendment rights are not limited to what you say. Your First Amendment rights are also include that you cannot be forced to say something. So when conservatives find themselves in a position where they want to impose regulations on social media and tell them what speech they must carry and what speech they cannot carry— they are engaging in com government-compelled speech, the exact same thing that they criticize the government for doing for poor Jack Phillips. So my next point is this. Some conservatives feel like just the fact that these platforms are big, that there's, they have too much market power, that there's no alternative, there's no competitor. They think the fact that they're big is a reason to justify speech regulation. But this issue of companies being too big, having too much market power, that's an entirely different area of law. That's called antitrust. So if you think that a company is too big and has too much market power, that's cause for an antitrust review. 
but it's not an excuse for speech regulation. Now, I should say that we don't think an antitrust review is justified with regard to social media either. The fact of the matter is, is that both Facebook and Twitter are competitors. Uh, Facebook literally took some of the features of Twitter early on and built them into Facebook so that people would use Facebook the same way that they use Twitter. So social media platforms are not monopolies because they compete with each other. But if you're troubled by the size and the dominance of these platforms, that's not a legal excuse to start trying to regulate speech. What that takes you is down the road of an antitrust investigation and deciding whether or not these companies are in fact too big and have too much power. Now, my next point is that we should remember the lesson of the fairness doctrine. If you value conservative talk radio, if you value Fox News, if you value Newsmax or OANN or any of these highly opinionated news outlets, you should not be in favor of trying to impose speech regulation on social media because we made that mistake before. For many years, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine on broadcast television and radio. And the Fairness Doctrine said that if political opinions were offered on broadcast airwaves, that the hosts of those opinions had to offer equal time to people who had different or opposing viewpoints. And this is why there was no such thing as conservative talk radio, and there was no such thing as Fox News until in the 1980s when the Reagan administration did away with the Fairness Doctrine. The reason we have the incredible diversity of opinion today on radio and on broadcast airwaves and on cable is that we got rid of speech regulation for broadcast media. Now, we at IPI did a Zoom event in 2020 on this topic. We did it. If you go to our website, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can do a search on Fairness Doctrine, and you will find where we did a deep dive on how the only reason that conservative media is possible today is that we got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. We got rid of speech regulations for broadcasts. And so it is highly ironic to see people going on conservative talk radio and going on Fox News demanding that we impose fairness regulations on social media platforms because they're actually they're making those statements on platforms that wouldn't exist if we had fairness regulations for speech on broadcast. So remember the lesson of the fairness doctrine and understand that imposing something like a fairness doctrine on social media will have the effect of stifling, not encouraging more political discussion. And that takes us to the next point, which is this. If the federal government were to start regulating social media platforms, I promise you, you will like the result of that even less than you like the current situation right now. Because social media platforms, if they face new legal liability, they will have one of two choices. They have to, they have to evade the legal liability in some way. So they've only got two options. One is to say, okay, fine. We are now a First Amendment platform. We're not going to block anything. We're not going to moderate anything. And guess what? If they do that, it'll be about 30 seconds before those platforms are flooded with pornography, with violence, with all sorts of offensive content, things you're not going to want to see, things you're not going to want your kids to see. 
And that would essentially have the effect of destroying the social media platforms. Now, they know this. They're not dumb. They're smart. They know this. And that's why they moderate. That's why none of them have taken that position. That's why none of them have said, we're just going to be a free speech platform. Anything goes. It's the Wild West. Because they know that that would drive away most of their customers and would leave them with only their craziest customers or their most disreputable customers. So that's why they moderate, because they understand what the risk of not moderating is. So that's if you, if you create all this additional new legal liability, one option is that the social media platforms would just stop blocking anything, and you won't like the result of that. The more likely outcome is what they would have to do in order to avoid legal liability is start filtering and moderating even more heavily. They would more than likely start blocking all political speech because they just can't run the legal liability risk of getting sued about having trial lawyers sicked on them and suing them with class action lawsuits. So they would either become boring pedestrian. Here's a picture of my kids. Here's a picture of the chocolate chip cookies I made tonight. And that would really be all that would be permitted on social media platforms. And that might interest you, but it's not going to interest most people. So either way, the social media companies end up losing their customers, either through becoming boring, milk-toast platforms with nothing interesting or controversial on them, or deeply offensive platforms because they're filled with nothing but controversial content. So you might not like the social media landscape today, but I can guarantee you that you'll like it even less if government steps in and starts creating new liability, legal liability, and trying to regulate speech. And that's a lovely transition to my next point, which is that conservatives should trust markets. Markets work to please the majority of people the majority of time. Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms They want as many happy customers as possible. They're not in the business of alienating people. They're not in the business of offending people. And so because they're greedy capitalists and they want to make as much money as possible, they want as many people on their platform as possible. And the way to get the most people on their platform as possible is to try to come up with the sweet spot of filtering and moderating policies so that we don't run people off, people enjoy their time on the platform, they spend as much time on the platform as they possibly can. Markets work over time. Give these platforms time to respond to their customers. Give them time to respond to their shareholders. And there's a lesson here for those of us who have been at this for a while. It wasn't that long ago that people thought MySpace was too big and had too much power. And there were all kind of calls for MySpace to be regulated and for MySpace to be broken up on antitrust grounds. People used to think Yahoo was too popular, and Yahoo just got sold the other day for pennies on the dollar of what it used to be worth. There are people who used to think Microsoft had too much power in the marketplace, and maybe they did for a few years, but they don't today. Who makes the leading cell phone? Not Microsoft. Who makes the most popular brand of computers and tablets? not Microsoft. And if you go back a few more years before that, people thought IBM was too big and too powerful. And the federal government went after IBM on antitrust grounds. 
and was threatening to break up IBM. And you know what happened? Over the years that that lawsuit took, IBM went from being a dominant player to just another competitor in the marketplace. So people over time have thought MySpace had too much power, Yahoo had too much power, Microsoft had too much power, and IBM had too much power. And if you go back far enough, people thought that the railroads had too much power, and people thought that Ford Motor Company had too much power. And if you go back even further than that, they thought the people who went around at night and lit the lit the gas streetlights at night had too much power. But markets have a way of ensuring that companies are only successful when they please their customers and when they do a good job. So trust the marketplace. These social media platforms are not in business to alienate you. They're in business to make you happy. My final point is you can't just declare social media platforms to be common carriers. At the time that we're recording this podcast, there are a number of states, mostly red states, who have, who have proposals before the legislatures that essentially, again, trying to please conservatives and attacking social media platforms, and they declare social media to be common carriers. Uh, I'm a big fan of a legislator in Texas named Brian Hughes. He's a wonderful guy, wonderful guy, big fan. He's got a bill right now. The first paragraph in his bill says, we find that social media platforms are common carriers. Well, you can't do that. That's not how it works. You can't just declare that a particular kind of business is a common carrier and thus subject to common carrier regulation. Now, not to do a whole podcast on the idea of common carriers, but we do have a body of law in the U.S. for trains and airplanes and water delivery and electricity de delivery and cable TV delivery and telephone delivery that are called common carriers. And if you're a common carrier, you are required by law to take any customer who wants to be a customer. You're not allowed to deny service to anybody. And you're not allowed to terminate their service unless they don't pay their bill or something like that. But the key element of common carriers is that they don't engage in speech. They don't host speech. They are largely necessary infrastructure. Social media platforms and websites bear nothing in common with common carriers. They're not anything like common carriers. And so you can't just declare in the first paragraph of your bill that we declare social media platforms to be common carriers as an excuse then to start applying all sorts of regulation to social media platforms. And my final point is an appeal to conservatives, and that is this. Let's not be guilty of the same sin that progressives are guilty of. Let's not be guilty of violating our principles in order to arrive at our preferred outcome. Uh, we as conservatives, we are principled. We are rule of law people. We are not by any means necessary people. We are not the end justifies the means people. We are process people. We are rule of law people. And so long as the law is good and the process is good, we have to content ourselves with the result that that market delivers with free people engaging in the marketplace, making their own choices and making their own decisions. Now, I know that there are some conservatives who might call that unilateral disarmament or surrender in the culture war, but we call it operating by principle. I hope that that was helpful to help our conservative friends at least understand 
why there are strong arguments to be made on the other side of this issue of calling for regulation of social media platforms. You can find a lot more about internet policy and free speech at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? And we would love it if you would share this episode with your friends. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.